0: All right, we've already done some a cappella singing this morning, but I think we need one more. All right, I think most of us will know this one. This This little light of mine, I'm gonna let it shine. This little light of mine, I'm gonna let it shine. This little light of mine. I'm gonna let it shine, let it shine, let it shine, let it shine. And then I taught this this one to the kids at camp this week. Won't let Satan it out. I'm gonna let it shine. Here we go. Won't let Satan it out. I'm gonna let it shine. Won't let Satan it out. I'm going to let it shine, let it shine, let it shine, let it shine, amen. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. All right, well, many of you um, have no doubt heard of the International Justice Mission, or IJM. It's a global organization that sends lawyers, imagine that, into the developing world to rescue the poor from forced slavery, from sex trafficking, and from other violent crimes. I still remember seeing a powerful video where IJM rescued three dozen girls out of a brothel in Cambodia, some of them as young as five years old. IJM was founded by an American Anglican named Gary Haugen. Haugen was educated at Harvard, and before founding IJM in 1997, he worked for the United Nations on justice issues related to the Rwandan genocide. So obviously, Gary Haugen is no stranger to confronting evil head on. But he's also a father, and I heard a story once about how he brings that mentality to his parenting. So basically, when his children were younger, they didn't wanna go to bed at night because they were afraid of the dark. And so Haugen and his kids came up with this strategy that they called charging the darkness, okay? So they would line up outside one of their dark rooms, and then they would all run in the room, yelling like banshees, like a bunch of warriors, and be like, ah, and they would go in there, and they would charge the darkness, and it would almost always turn into full-belly laughing, because of course, there was nothing to be afraid of. And I love learning about this connection between Haugen's parenting on the one hand, and the work of IJM on the other, because, they both involve mobilizing people to contend with evil rather than running from it. Amen? Now, as we look at our gospel passage today from Luke 10, which describes the Lord sending out the 72, sending out his disciples ahead of him on kingdom mission, I want us to hold this image of a father and his children charging the darkness together. Because the mission of Jesus describes uh, that he describes in this passage, it may not be as safe as running into a dark bedroom, but it does over it does involve overcoming fear, bringing light into dark places and contending with evil rather than running from it. And just as with all kingdom mission, Jesus assures his disciples that his father will be with them as they go. Amen. Will you please turn there with me to Luke 10, verses 1 through 20? On page 815 of your Pew Bible, Luke 10 1 through 20. And verse 1 begins After this, the Lord appointed 72 others, that is, in addition to the 12 apostles that He's already sent out earlier on in chapter 9. And He sent them on ahead of them, two by two, into every town and place where He Himself was about to go. And then Jesus proceeds to give these 72 disciples various instructions about the mission. In fact, he gives them far more instructions than he had given the 12 in chapter 9. Now, who were these 72 nameless others that are mentioned nowhere else in the Gospels? Well, some of the early church fathers interpreted this episode as an origin story for the office of presbyter or elder. Um, Much like the story of the first seven deacons in Acts chapter 6, if you remember, the first seven deacons who um, served the neglected widows. Um, And the fathers grounded this view in the parallels between Jesus and Moses in the passage we just read from Numbers 11. Just as Moses appointed 70 men of the elders of Israel, and the Greek Septuagint actually uses the word presbyters, To bear the burden of the people of Israel and to share in his ministry, so Jesus Christ, the new and greater Moses, seems to be extending his own authority to this wider band of apostolic disciples, this 70 or 72. Now, um, why do some of the earliest manuscripts for Luke 10:1 use the number 70, and then you probably see a little footnote that some of the earliest manuscripts say 70, some of them say 72? Well, back in Genesis 10, you find this lengthy genealogy. It's sometimes referred to as the Table of Nations. And uh, the story of Noah has just ended, and we're given this list of all the nations of the world that would proceed from his offspring. And if we were to count those nations in the original Hebrew manuscript, the total number is 70 nations. But if you were to look at the Greek Septuagint, guess how many nations are listed? 72, now don't ask me where they get the two extra nations, they smuggled them in there somehow, okay? Uh, But either way, whether it's 70 or 72, the number would symbolically announce to the readers, right, that the kingdom of God was to be extended not just to all of Israel, but to every nation under heaven. Some scholars actually think that Jesus originally chose 70, as a clear reference to his Jewish disciples, but then later when the Gospel of Luke was transmitted to an increasingly Greek-speaking audience, the number 72 was chosen to make this allusion to the Septuagint all the more clear, so it was a kind of contextualization. So our Gospel text has some beautiful echoes from the Old Testament, both in the 70 elders of Moses and in the Table of Nations in Genesis, but now let's dive into the passage itself. I have to say, when we, when we studied this passage on Wednesday night Bible study, um, we came up with 19 principles of kingdom mission from this passage alone. Uh, principles like uh, seeking a person of peace and not allowing yourself to get distracted. Uh, but I figure it would be a precarious thing to try to do a 19 point sermon uh, this morning. So I'm just gonna focus on six principles, six principles of kingdom mission. So the first principle is this, uh, and Fumi just uh, shared this with the children, that kingdom mission happens in pairs, in teams, in community. One of the most striking details in this passage is that Jesus sent them out two by two. Jesus essentially tells them, go, but don't go alone. This commitment to doing mission in pairs is particularly striking when we consider how urgent the mission was. Jesus says the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. So that mission was urgent. They could have doubled their pool of missionaries if they would have just sent them out on their own. But apparently the need for companionship, companionship, the need to work as a team trumped the need for urgency. You know, this is a principle that we see throughout the New Testament. Even the Apostle Paul, the missionary par excellence, went about planting churches in teams with people like Barnabas and Silas and Priscilla and Aquila. And that's why shared mission has been one of the basic values of this church from the beginning. I once heard a quote that says, meaning comes from what you do and joy comes from who you do it with. Are we lacking in joy in the mission? Maybe we need a partner in the gospel, amen? I'm grateful to the Lord that he's given me my wife, Carissa, to be my primary ministry partner now for over 20 years. I'm grateful to the Lord that when he sent us here to plant this church, he gave us partners in the gospel, dear friends in John and Sarah Hall, as well as many of you who are still ministering alongside us today. As Christians, we're called to kingdom mission, whether it's sharing the gospel or serving the poor or leading Bible study or visiting people in prison, but we're called to do this mission in community, not by ourselves. And I think there's something comforting about that, isn't there? So maybe you're afraid to invite your non-Christian neighbor over for dinner, but if you had Ceci or, or Bev or John Perry with you, you'd be all right. Maybe you have an idea for like a cool nonprofit to serve the common good, but you need a partner, and maybe that partner is sitting right next to you today. Because when you go out in twos and threes, you actually go with a kind of foretaste of the kingdom fellowship that you're seeking in others, right? Because Jesus promised where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am in the midst of them. All right, the second principle of kingdom mission is that mission should be covered in prayer. Jesus says in verse 2, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, the first thing that you're going to need is a business plan. You're going to need a budget. Here's the top five books you need to read before you go out into the mission. No, before all that, before any of them, he tells them, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest field. Prayer and mission go together. Amen? And then in verse 3, we learn that Jesus wants them to answer their own prayers. He actually wants to make them an answer to their own prayers. Now, is there something that you've been wanting, the Lord, wanting to see the Lord do through this church? Some new ministry or mission or expression of our values? Well, then I think the Lord Jesus would have two questions for you. Are you praying about it regularly? And number two, are you willing to be the one to do it? Now, it's not always the case that God is calling the one who's praying to do it, but he receives our willingness as worship. Just don't neglect to pray. Jesus's ministry was saturated in prayer. So it's not surprising that he wants the mission of his followers to look the same way. As a friend at Incarnation recently reminded me, we can't expect the results of Jesus without adopting the way of Jesus. So here's what I want you to do this morning. All right, I want you to take out your phone. It's, I, I know we don't usually like you to have your phone in your hand, but will you take out your phone just for a moment? And I want you to go to um, the alarms part. And I want you to set an alarm for 1002. To go off every day of the week except for Sunday, okay? And then wherever you are, when that alarm goes off, pray for God to send laborers into his harvest field. Pray for the harvest field of the Lord. Wouldn't that be a beautiful thing if 200 of us had an alarm beeping off in the, in the midst of our week and we were just we would just pause to pray for the mission of God, amen? All right, number three, kingdom mission is not deterred by risk it's not deterred by risk. Jesus tells them plainly in verse 3, "Go on your way, behold, I am sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves." Now that's not a very encouraging image, is it? Lambs don't have fangs. Wolves do. Lambs don't run in these like strategic packs. They're dumb. They need someone to protect them. I thought Jesus was supposed to be the good shepherd. Well, of course he is. And there's a certain protection that comes with sending them out in pairs. And of course, he promises spiritual protection from them, uh, from the power of Satan in verse 19. But here's the thing. When it comes to just discipleship, Jesus never hides the cost. The modern church may do it, But Jesus never did it. We may do it. We may hide the cost. Jesus never did. Jesus tells them plainly, I am sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. There are hazards in this call to follow Christ. There are enemies. But Jesus tells us in Matthew 10, 28, do not fear those who kill the body and cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both body and soul in hell. Jesus' point here is not that we shouldn't take normal precautions like locking our doors at night, but instead that we should properly distinguish between temporal dangers and eternal dangers. If we have those things straight, then we'll remember that human beings may hurt you in this life, but they can't touch you in the next If you're secure in the Lord, if the Lord has you in his hand, none can snatch snatch you from his hand. In his book, Introduction to Christianity, Cardinal Joseph Ratzinger discusses the early Christians and their willingness to face death rather than participate in any way in the cult of the Roman emperor. And it was so common for people to participate in this. He writes it's important to realize that this refusal was far from being a piece of narrow-minded fanaticism and that it changed the world in a way in which it can only be changed by a readiness to suffer. Since we know that we have eternal life, it's through our willingness to face risk. It's through our willingness to embrace suffering that the world is changed and turned upside down. That was true of their early disciples. It's true today. Recently, this principle has been modeled for us so clearly by the Kogan family, and I don't mean to embarrass them, but in their efforts to rescue orphans from a war zone in Ukraine, I thank God for them. Nick and his daughter Kenley, as well as the Kogan's oldest son, we know, as we've prayed for them, have been risking life and limb to fill buses of orphans and get them out of Ukraine. And meanwhile, Keeley has held down the fort with the rest of the kids here in Tallahassee and they've had to daily pray and trust the Lord to protect their loved ones. These are the kinds of risks that we all signed up for. Do you know that? When we were baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, not that everyone, not, not that everything in the Christian life is suffering and risk. That's not what I'm saying. There's also joy, much joy, even in this passage. But neither can these less pleasant realities just be conveniently avoided. Indeed, we, if we have embraced the cross-shaped path of Jesus, there are times when suffering and risk are just going to be a part of the package. Number four, kingdom mission travels light. Or to use a military term, it's willing to operate on thin rations. Jesus commands them in verse four, carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals. These disciples were be, were to be reliant upon the people they ministered to for their wages, to eat whatever was set before them. I think that part of the point here is that there's a healthy give and take in kingdom mission. So these disciples brought the word, and they healed the sick, and uh, this ministry was crucial, but Jesus didn't want them to be stuck in this paternalistic, ever-giving, never-receiving mode. Real human relationships involve both giving and receiving. You remember when Peter didn't want Jesus to wash his feet? No, Lord, you shall never do this. And Jesus taught him a lesson about the kingdom of God in that moment. To allow someone to bless you is a part of recognizing their common humanity. And to allow God to bless us through Christ is necessary for our salvation. Did you know that even the Lord Jesus himself had several women who were financial benefactors in his ministry? Did you know that? Flip back with me to Luke chapter 8, to the beginning of Luke chapter 8. I feel like this isn't often spoken about. But in Luke 8, beginning in verse 1, it says, After this, Jesus traveled from one city and village to another. Sounds a lot like what he's having the 72 do in Luke 10. He spread the good news about God's kingdom. It says, The twelve apostles were with him. Also, some women were with him. They had been cured from evil spirits and various illnesses. These women were Mary, also called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out. Joanna, whose husband Chusa was Herod's administrator, Susanna, and many other women. And then here's the interesting part. It says, they provided financial support for Jesus and his disciples. Isn't that interesting? Jesus had these female, these rich female benefactors. The point is that the kingdom mission, it travels light, it trusts God to provide. And usually, even for Jesus, that means God providing through other people. Number five, kingdom mission always involves both acceptance and rejection. And here's the thing, either way, the message stays the same. The message remains the same. Let's pick things up back in Luke 10, beginning in verse 8. Jesus says, whenever you enter a town and they receive you, so here's the instructions when people are receptive. In that case, Jesus says, eat what is set before you. Heal the sick in it and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. But on the other hand, when you enter a town and they do not receive you, go into the streets and say, even the dust of your town that clings to our feet, we wipe off against you. So this was a prophetically symbolic act warning that town of God's coming judgment. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near. And here we see that their basic message of the kingdom remains the same, whether they're speaking to the receptive in verse 9 or to those who are rejecting their message in verse 11. Now, to be clear, the message of the kingdom is not at its heart a message of condemnation. It's a message of salvation, right? God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Jesus is the divine medicine, that God has sent from heaven, but people can accept it or people can reject it. Uh, It says in John 3 that the world stood condemned already and Jesus came as the cure, but God doesn't force that cure upon anyone. Kingdom mission is always going to involve both acceptance and rejection. And I think for our modern... ...swallow in this entire passage even more than physical risks or traveling light we say I, we, I can travel light as long as I still have like you know my phone and stuff like that you know In an age where everyone is deathly afraid of offending someone, of being dismissed as narrow-minded, the scariest part of Kingdom mission for us is that it might involve social rejection. And this deeply ingrained sense of fear distorts our understanding of mission. Is there a more common error amongst American Christians today than the error of over-contextualization? Let me explain what I mean. To contextualize the gospel is to make it more understandable to a specific person or culture, and that's a good thing. Jesus commonly taught about the kingdom of God with analogies and with parables that made sense to this agrarian culture that he was among in the gospels. Likewise, the church is called to contextualize the gospel today, to speak it in a way that people can understand. However, to over-contextualize, what do you think that involves? Watering it down, changing the message in some way. Yeah, it means that we're over-accommodating its content to the context of our culture, right? And, and, And the more that our culture cares and there's a sense of pressure about a specific topic, the more pressure there is for the church to distort the message on those specific points. For example... I think there are many of us who would be more offended on a visceral level by a preacher giving clear biblical teaching on human sexuality and gender than we would if the preacher denied the virgin birth. I think that if a preacher spoke about God's judgment with the kind of -of matter-of-fact tone that Jesus uses in verses 10 through 15, man, we'd be likely to leave a church like that. We'd say, I came to church to be inspired and encouraged not to be preached at. <laughs> Friends, it's crucial that we understand that the theological and moral content of the kingdom of God stays the same, whether it's popular or unpopular. I, listen, I've been doing ministry now for almost 20 years. Some of you have been at it longer than I have. You show me somebody that's been converted by an overly contextualized ministry, one that de-emphasizes truth and repentance. And I'll show you someone who won't be following Jesus five years from now. That's false fruit, guys. It's false fruit. Like that plastic stuff that's, you know, in the center of your dinner table. And simply put, that's just not the way that Jesus did ministry. Do you remember what he said to the rich young ruler? He says, one thing you lack. This is just one little thing. Sell everything you have Give it to the poor and then come follow me and you'll have treasure in heaven. And it said the rich young ruler, he went away sad because he had so much. And Jesus didn't run after him and say, no, no, hold on one second. Maybe just half of what you have. No, because a half measure wouldn't have done him any good. His idol needed to be crucified so that he could accept the crucified Lord. Amen. Amen. how different this is from the way that we tend to think about ministry. We tend to think that if we share Christ with someone and they accept it, it's because we've done a good job in our presentation. On the other hand, we think that if we share Christ and someone rejects it, then it's, we've probably done something wrong. In fact, we've probably done more harm than good. We fail to realize that their acceptance or rejection of Christ probably has nothing to do with us. It's a mystery of the gospel between them and the Lord. Listen to our reading from 2 Corinthians 2, 15 through 16. It says, we are the aroma of Christ among those who are being saved, among those who are perishing to the one. We are a fragrance of death to the other, the fragrance of life. It's the same fragrance, guys. Now, don't get me wrong. There is a wrong way to do ministry. We're not called to be... You know, we're, we're called to minister the truth and love, not to be like shock jock jerks for Jesus. But I doubt that for most of us, that that's the besetting sin. Is it not the case rather that in our lust for social acceptance, in our lust for people pleasing, we bury the talents of God that he's entrusted to us? On the other hand, Brothers and sisters, there's a promise in this passage, because if we stick to the message of Christ and his kingdom, then what he says in verse 16 will be true of us. The one who hears you, hears me. The one who rejects you, rejects me. And he says, the one who rejects me, rejects him who sent me. Okay, so far we've looked at five principles of kingdom mission, that kingdom mission happens two by two and pairs and community, that it should be covered in prayer to the Lord of the harvest, that the mission is not to be, is uh, not deterred by risk. Indeed, we at times actively embrace risk. Four, that we're called to travel light. We're willing to be, operate on thin rations. And the kingdom mission number five, will always involve both acceptance and rejection, and the message is supposed to say the same. So, how about you? Have you embraced Christ's mission as a basic commitment of your life, Christian? If so, are you still walking in it? What is your ministry? Now, some of us are are called to teach, some of us are called to deeds of mercy, some of us are called to public evangelism, some of us are called to private hospitality. Some of us are called to lead adults, some to disciple children, some to intercession, some to generosity, some to urban missions, some to foreign lands, some to the ordained priesthood, but all as a part of God's royal priesthood. This morning, I want to encourage you, pray to the Lord, do business with God. Ask him if you're walking in the ministry that he has for you. If you need help discerning ministry, that's a conversation I love to have. And there are probably others here who would have it with you. If we are disciples of Jesus, we're called to participate in the kingdom mission and we should be committed to growing in the kingdom mission. But even if you are participating, if you have a ministry and you're growing in it, after all this talk about kingdom mission, there's still one more principle that Jesus has for us. And that's number six, that kingdom mission rejoices in salvation above all else, above all else. Physical protection is a good thing, but it's not the greatest good. Financial stability is a good thing, but it's not an ultimate thing. Pleasures and good food and even companionship are all gifts from God, but there's still a greater gift. Even if we exercise legitimate spiritual authority over the powers of darkness in the name of Jesus, Nothing is compared to the salvation of our souls. Verse 17, Jesus says, the 72 returned with joy saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. That would make me excited too. And Jesus answered, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Uh, It's easy that we can skim past a statement like that without really taking it in, but let's just pause for a minute and acknowledge that Jesus is saying that he was there in heaven when Satan fell from glory. I mean, just listen to what Jesus is saying about himself and a little aside. And it's on the basis of Jesus's authority in heaven that he's given these disciples authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, verse 19. Nevertheless, verse 20, And here Jesus wants to pastor their perspective a little bit. He wants to pastor our perspective a little bit. So he tells them, do not rejoice in this. This is really cool, but that that the spirits are subject to you. But rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Are your names written in heaven? Are you helping for other people's names to be written in heaven? Do you know Jesus as your savior? Is your name written in heaven? Because that's the most precious gift of all, the promise of eternal life, the promise that he will never leave nor forsake you, that nothing can snatch you out of his hands, that your sins have been washed clean by the blood of Jesus. For your sake, out of his great love for you, Jesus charged the darkness, guys, defeating death and Satan and atoning for your sins upon the cross. Indeed, for your sake, a light, Shines in the darkness. And the darkness has not overcome it. And what does the darkness matter to us? As long as we're holding the Father's hand. Amen.